Good morning, and welcome to More Than Miscellaneous, the Miscellany News Radio Show. I'm our news editor, Lucy Brewster. And I'm Adam Buckmuller. And we're here filling in for Dean Kapitsky. Now we'd like to talk to Jacques, who is a first year and a guest news reporter. Hi, guys. I'm Jacques. Thank you guys so much for having me today. Of course. It's a pleasure to have you. So this is your first time writing an article for The MISC, and you wrote about this past Halloween weekend and what that was like and the Halloween traditions on campus. How did writing for The MISC go this week? Was it what you expected? Yeah, um... You know, it, to a certain extent, it definitely was what I expected. Um, I spent all of my high school writing for my, for my school newspaper. I spent my last year as editor-in-chief. And it was really just a pleasure to return to writing journalism and writing articles. Um, you know, n- news writing is something that I really admire. And, and so it, it definitely was what I expected. And it was really fun to get back into, you know, pursuing my passions and, and writing. Yeah, your article was so great. Um, So can you give us a little bit of context about what the major events were on campus this Halloween and how did they go? Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I mean, one of the biggest events that that Vassar holds is the Tent on Noise. Um, It's historically quite a big event. And I think this year it wasn't any different. Um, You know, COVID definitely changed some aspects of it. But, you know, for the large part, there were a lot of people there. We were having fun. Music was playing. And, and it went really well to the pe- for the people I talked to. Um, but, you know, there were, were smaller events, too. Um, the, the VSA organized pumpkin patch picking, and, and people got to decorate and carve pumpkins. And, and that's only the second year this has been happening. So it's, it was really interesting to sort of see how culture is developing on campus. Um, you know, we also had a, a haunted house that held by Raymond and and there was a Coco and Claire concert Friday night. So there was just a bunch of little small events that the school did trying to reinstate Halloween. Yeah, it was amazing how much was going on on campus. I was really, it was really great to see. And you know, this is obviously in the context of this being our first real Halloween in the COVID-19 era. Um, so how did you feel as a first year? Did you think you could, you know, s- get a sense of the culture of Halloween celebrations on campus, um, even with nothing to compare it to? And really two of the classes at Vassar having nothing to compare, compare it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I think that's definitely one of the things I discovered while doing my interviewing and researching. Um, a, the, a lot of the upperclassmen I talked to who had experienced a real Halloween just thought it would be really difficult to return to pre-COVID, to return to that sense of normalcy. But for the large part, you know, it, it somewhat happened. It, we got a weekend of normalcy. We got a weekend of going out and hanging out with friends, dressing up. And so I, I think even with nothing to compare it to, I was able to get a sense that Halloween weekend is an important thing here. It's an important time for us to, you know, just be with friends and, and go out. And, and so I think despite COVID, we, we were able to somewhat return to normalcy. And I think a lot of students are grateful for that. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned the noise tent, and that was a pretty iconic, um, 
pre-COVID event and it's sort of a rave where people are dancing and there's loud music and it's very crowded. So were there COVID um, restrictions for that? And in terms of COVID, did the students you spoke to feel safe at this event and others on campus? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question because we are, you know, in the final stages of a pandemic. It's definitely not over. And so um, while masks weren't required at the noise tent, um, the people, I, the, the organizers I talked to did say they were recommended and that there were uh, extra entrances to increase airflow inside. But in, in terms of what students could and couldn't do, there really weren't many restrictions. Um, we obviously had a capacity at the tr- tent. Um, and, and some students were wearing masks, but in terms of the students I talked to, th- there were some sense of safety, but it was, it was hard. You know, it, it, it was different from what we were used to. It, it just wasn't, you know, it, it, we were coming out of no social gatherings for the last two years. And so seeing something like this, it's different, but students felt safe. You know, students felt good going out and seeing their friends, especially since... Uh, most of most of students received COVID tests the week after break, and now we have to re- receive more COVID tests. So, I feel like there were safety measures in place to feel to to allow students to feel safe on campus. Yeah, for sure, um, definitely. You also reported that there were a high number of students EMS this Halloween weekend, and especially Friday night. Do you have any? theories as to why that is or did you you come up with anything yeah so i mean i i definitely looked into that when i was researching the article um and so as i'm sure a lot of students know dean luisa noah emailed us on saturday informing us of that a large number an unusually large number of students were emsed uh friday night due to intoxication and and while he didn't have any any more specific theories than that um after two years, like I said, of limited social gatherings, students are still learning how alcohol affects their body. And this is something that Dean Carlos Alamo talked to me about. Um, and it, we're just learning how to go out again. You know, we, we've been inside for two years and, and it, it's a lot when you're offered so much of regular life again. Uh, sometimes students just take it a little too far. Yeah, it definitely felt like this past weekend was so much of a return to normalcy mm-hmm. it really was like completely different from what we've been seeing for the right. past two years and that's what i talked to a lot of students about is how you know we finally felt like we had a sense of normalcy like we were pre-pandemic um and even if it was just for one weekend everyone i talked to said it was worth it everyone i talked to said they they had such a good time and that it it was so nice to get one step closer for sure yeah, and um, since Halloween weekend, as you know, the college has issued more restrictions on social gatherings and events, limiting uh, registered parties to 15 people inside with an additional 10 outside. It's only 25 people. Um, so, you know, in your opinion, and after reporting on Vassar's social life, what do you think of the new regulations and how do you think it'll affect students? Yeah, you know, I think it's a, it's a really good question to consider. Um, and obviously safety, both mentally and physically, comes first. We want to make sure that we're, we're not being outright dangerous coming out of a pandemic. So to a certain extent, I think these new restrictions will sort of help us uh, realize that, yes, we're coming out of a pandemic, but we need to take precautions still. We need to be careful and we can't just revert everything back to normal. So coming out of Halloween, you know, having tests, that was a really good way 
uh, to to just sort of ease things back into thing in, into pre-pandemic life. Um, and to the extent that it'll change social life, honestly, I don't think it will that much. Um, you know, obviously, big parties aren't going to be very prevalent anymore. And, and that is because the school wants to encourage students to, to be in less groups, to make smart decisions, to not overdrink, to, you know, to... It, it's, it's all about consuming responsibly. And I think the new restrictions might help students do that exactly. Do you think we're going to see any weekends like Halloween weekend again this year or even this semester? You know, I think it definitely is a hope. And I definitely think that students should be looking forward to that because, you know, um, President Bradley emailed us this Sunday, told us that COVID cases are going down and that, you know, Dutchess, in Dutchess County as well. So I, I think students do have a real hope to look forward to, a real sense of normalcy. And, and Halloween weekend is it's just a taste of what's to come, I think. Yeah, thank you so much, Jacques. That was so, the article was so great, and it's so nice to talk to you. Thank you guys so much. And it's great to talk to someone who's you know writing for the first time, and we hope you continue writing. I hope to be back here again, guys. Thank yes. you. All right, now we are joined by Sam. Hello. It's good to have you in here. Thanks. So you are an opinions contributor for The MISC. I just wanted to ask, what do you like about writing for opinions? I think I like being able to kind of just write whatever I have an opinion on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's good to have a platform. Yeah, I mean, I just... Sometimes with news and um, just reporting and things, I sometimes find myself getting a little stuck in terms of, like, passion to continue. And with opinions, I mean, you're always at least somewhat passionate on the topic that you're writing about. So it comes a little bit easier, at least for me. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Um, so to get into your, your latest article which is about uh, Latin American migration. You explain that this migration has been framed in a limited historical context. Can you give us some background on the history you consider vital to understanding the instability in Latin America? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that the Biden administration and the United States in general um, just kind of fails to acknowledge its own role in destabilizing or contributing to the instability in the region. And I think that a lot of times from the American shared historical memory, I guess, like it seems that um, the United States' role in Latin America isn't really, hasn't been very clear. And like people... At least for me, I didn't really know that much until coming to college about the United States' role in the region. And I think it's really important in 
understanding like the roots of the issues that face the region politically today um and just to go into that a little bit like um after after uh, latin american after the first wave of latin american independence in the 1820s uh, you have the Uni- you have the monroe doctrine coming out of the united states which basically um proclaims hegemony uh, united states hegemony over the region and united states capitalist interests along with british and other western european business interests throughout the 1800s were um just kind of like infiltrating these markets and taking advantage of these markets and then by the time by the time of the 20th century and as the united states has become like a a bigger power in many ways territorially and um economically and as it takes the world stage getting into world war one and world war two you really see um intentional political interventions with the sole purpose of like controlling and taking advantage of latin american economic markets in the region so for example you have um, CIA-sponsored coups in Guatemala and Chile, and you have, I mean, all sorts of, it's really just a long history, but just all sorts of different pressures, whether it's economic policy, political interventions, blockades, um, or just standard, like, political pressure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a there's a long history of that mm-hmm. with America, just like getting involved in these other countries, you know, trying to be independent and trying to stand on their own, and then uh, the American government has just gotten in the way and and mm-hmm. sort of forced them to be dependent on us. Yes, and and I agree completely that the Biden administration has a lot to, you know, acknowledge, and a lot of these problems that they sort of are saying, you know, deal with on your own. Are, are the direct result of our country's actions. Yeah, exactly. And the like main focal point of my article is um, the press conference that Vice President Kamala Harris gave in June when she went to Guatemala on a state visit um, and basically kind of just gestured at a whole as a whole towards um, Latin American corruption and specifically like she called out Guatemalan Guatemalan leaders in like um, having a hand in these economic crises that are um, like spurring these huge waves of migration on the southern border and obviously these like corrupt leaders in Central America definitely do have a very large role to play in this but I think that, I mean, it's ironic that the United States is calling out corruption in general because, like, I mean, after the coup in Guatemala in the, I think it's the 60s, um, in 1954, sorry, like, you have a series of military dictatorships and eventual like this transition to these like crony autocratic governments that are basically enforcing the same the same messages that the that the united states government wants them to enforce so it's kind of just like an interesting 
just an ironic circle of who is creating the corruption, who is doing the corruption, what are these, what are these bigger pieces at play? Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe the answer is clear here, but why do you think America's colonial and neocolonial exploitation is so often left out of uh, our media coverage of Latin American countries? I mean, yeah, that's a good question because I would also like to know, and it seems like these, especially with United States foreign policy, they're really framed in nationalistic ways that support um, the perspective of the United States government in U.S. news, major news media. And I think that oftentimes... Leaving out the history of the United States and leaving out the history of these regions and only focusing on, oh, the past 20 years we've seen X, Y, Z makes it easy for news media, makes it easy for the government to point fingers um, away from themselves. And in analyzing larger historical trends and patterns, you really see that the United States does have a lot of responsibility to bear in, in these in this perpetual destabilization and these perpetual crises that we see occur again and again. Yeah, so sort of going along with that on a larger level, on sort of a more general level, how do you think journalists journalists can better incorporate historical context into news coverage? Um, on this issue and others? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, because like you're always working against a word count, you're working against so many things and having to include so much. So there's only so much you can say in like a paragraph where you're like X country, which has been marred by corruption for how many years. But I think that when talking about these things, it's important to at least include a blurb in ter- and give a timeline historically about the country in question and just kind of like go through that a little bit because without historical context, it's in these like issues like foreign relations or any type of like real political issue, there's always a history and there's always like different actors at play that are influencing it. So I think it's just important to somehow work in clearly like how for example the United States or how for example any historical actor is influencing the country or the issue like migration just kind of like set it in there which like this region for years which is the subject of like economic and political alterations at the hands of the United States to um, infiltrate its economies has in turn also had X many years of corruption, X many years of political, economic turmoil, et cetera. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think that's something, you know, I think about in terms of covering like public policy or anything in terms of international relations, like how you work in the historical background that's so necessary when 
that's not necessarily what people are looking to read when they're yeah. you know reading an article so no, I, I appreciate that you, you know, you're writing about this. And then, so you also write that the U.S. should support local democratic organizations in creating policies that undo this legacy. Sort of beyond acknowledging the history, like what, what do you think, what kind of economic policies, you know, do you think that the U.S. could instate to support these countries that have sort of been destabilized by our foreign policy? Um, you know, I guess I'm not an economic expert, so I'm going to just, like, keep it short with this because I don't know that much. No, but um, I think that kind of, like, fostering, just untying the neocolonial legacy that kind of drains um, dollars out of the region and kind and just focusing on ways to actually, like, infuse um, infuse money in the economy that will actually substantially develop and redistribute itself um, along, like, socioeconomic lines in the country in an, in an egalitarian way. But I don't know the exact mechanisms on going about that. Yeah, of course. Well, thank you so much. Again, this was Sam Patz, um, a columnist who wrote for Opinions this week. And thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you, Sam. Megan, you were the arts editor a few years ago, <laughs> and now you're coming back to write for arts again. So what was it like to write for The Misc, um, you know, after a hiatus? Um, yeah, <laughs> I didn't know if my hiatus would make an appearance on the show. <laughs> um, but yeah, I wrote this article because I really loved looking at Simon Toski's work in the gallery. Um and I just felt really compelled to keep going with it and let it like run in my head a little bit and try to write about it. Um, I don't know, I don't think it was much of a decision, more of just a feeling that I really like this work, I really like this artist, I wanna learn more, I wanna talk to him and um, you know, see what he's like, so yeah. Yeah, it was so great to read your article, um, and so, do you want to just give some context about um, who Simon Toski is and how you heard about his work? Yeah, so I had not seen his work in, until it was in the gallery a week or two ago, um, which is really interesting because he is, from what I've gathered, like definitely not like a super well-known artist and kind of um, got the got to be in the gallery because of a connection with Harry Roseman, um, who was an arts professor here up until like last year. Um, 
And I think that's kind of how a lot of the artists in the Palmer Gallery gallery run is like not super known. Um, so it was really great to like get to see his work. Um, and I think it spoke to a lot of people from what I've gathered uh, like around campus. Like it's just really p- powerful and emotional. Um, so yeah, I didn't know about him before, um, but I'm really glad that I do now. <laughs> Could you quickly just describe uh, his works? Yeah, so um, they're really colorful. And I think when you walk in, you, you get a lot of like bright blues and reds. Um, and most of the works have a figure sort of hovering around. Some of them are kind of like masked. There's not a lot of like bodies except for like faces, which I think is really interesting. Um, but they're very very bright but also I think they're really dark like melancholy and they kind of show a lot of chaos and like disruption um and he also paints them with like so many different layers so you can see that they've been really like worked on over years and like the figures have been rendered and re-rendered so like you have eyes but they're kind of not there and there's I don't know it's not it doesn't seem completely real, but it's definitely tangible, if that makes sense. But yeah, I, I just love the colors in them, and I love the way that he explores um, reality, I guess. Yeah, the paintings are really beautiful. And so to you, what felt unique about his work and like what struck you about it when you first saw it? Um. I think what struck me about them was how, like, open and honest they are. Like, they're, um, I don't know, they just seem really raw. Um, And I don't think I've seen a lot of, like, art, especially just, like, casually, like, walking around. It's, it feels kind of new to just see something that is so, like, blatant and real. Um, Yeah, I can see how they, they're definitely... Um, sort of like abstract expressionist in some way, but I wouldn't even categorize them in any sense. Yeah. And it must be especially cool to have that kind of work that that elicits that kind of reaction, to have that, you know, at Vassar and at the Palmer Gallery where it's like right here. Yeah, I, I agree. And just like from taking arts classes and doing my own painting, it feels really special to stumble upon like an artist that is not like super known or you know like is not like in the canon but can really I don't know inspire people to like paint what they want to and I think there's a lot of dismay in a lot of people that take arts classes and how it can feel a little bit draining and just like I feel that like kind of creative drainage lately just having to kind of like churn out art or writing and not necessarily feel like it's um, intrinsically like valuable to me. But I don't know, seeing like real art that um, is just kind of like existing for us at Vassar right now was really nice. Um, Did interviewing Toski change your perspective on his work? Um, I wouldn't say it changed my perspective, but it was really a great like, surprise and he was such an amazing um 
person to talk to. He was like really casual and chill and very unpretentious, which is really nice to get from an artist. Um, but I, I was kind of surprised because when I asked him to, when I asked him to, um, talk, he was like, Oh, do you want to like go and sit down? And then we sat down for like half an hour and I felt kind of bad because I was like, Oh no, this is like your opening. Like, I don't want to take your time, but he is extremely generous and gracious and even like reposted my article, which was like so kind. Um, so I, I just like, he's, he seems, um, I don't know, like, I'm just really glad that he was able to get this opportunity to have his work shown here. It seems like he really, like, worked for and deserved it. Yeah. Um, do you know how, anything about how the Palmer Gallery selects its artists? I, I, from what I've gathered, it seems very, like, word of mouth, um, what is also interesting is that the works that are being shown now, like this year, are all things that were supposed to be up before COVID. Um, really? Yeah, which is really cool. Um, I, yeah, because it feels like a blast from the past, but also like, or when I was talking to Tosca, it seemed like this work is only here now, kind of because there was this like break and if his work had been shown you know whatever one two years ago whatever it was it would not be what it is now and I think that's really special um yeah I don't know it's cool that we had this like world break but we can still like show what we made from that time I guess and also collectively mourn that like passage of time but celebrate how it like did create a lot of like goodness yeah so were these all works from from before the pandemic or did he make them over the i yeah so all of them have like tagged 2021 as the date okay but i from what from talking to him i think like they have been worked on for a longer uh span of time so they maybe maybe like they were started like or years ago and then he like returned to them from what i like from our conversation, it's clear that his process can sometimes include like sitting with work and thinking about it and thinking, what does this need? Like, where is this painting at? Um, and then returning and reworking it. Um, so I think there was just like a lot of reworking done in the past few years, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't want to say too much because I don't know exactly, but I think there has been a good amount of time. So even though they are like tagged in 2021 and were probably worked on a lot during the pandemic, like some of them are gotten into later on, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So just one last question here. Um, why do you think it's important that Vassar students are exposed to local artists? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's, it's always really important to know what art is going on in the community around you. And I think at Vassar, there does seem to be um, an assertion that, you know, there is like sort of a canon of artists to like draw and learn from. And that's just not true. Um, there's just so many amazing artists around like in the Hudson Valley and or not even necessarily here, but that aren't like talked about. Um, in our classes or in any spaces at Vassar. And yeah, I think it's just great to like see people that are not necessarily like 
super well known, but can really speak to you as an artist and also as like a young person or someone that is not, you know, hasn't like made it quote unquote yet, but it's still doing art because it's what they care about. Yeah. I mean, and obviously everyone who's in these, this, this art history canon started out as yeah. just a local artist somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And I, I really wonder what could happen for Simon Toski. I don't know. I think his work is so beautiful and I could see it definitely exploding from Vassar into somewhere else. Well, thank you so much, Megan. Thank you. This is Megan Hayfield, the former arts editor <laughs> and <Person>. maybe and, <laughs> and future contributor. Yes. <laughs> International Film Festival has just announced its 2022 dates and call for entries. The 2022 Harlem International Film Festival is getting underway. It will take place on May 5th through 8th as a hybrid presentation with enthusiastic appearances by world-class filmmakers and local personalities in Harlem and greater New York City. The Harlem International Film Festival prides itself on the ability to find films that will introduce people throughout the state of New York and the film community at large to the unique blend of global cinema and local films. They are looking for submissions in several categories, including world film, documentary, animation, experimental, youth film, music video, and more. Additional awards are the Mira Nair Award for Rising Female Filmmaker, the New York Vision Award, the Harlem Spotlight Award, and Screenplay Awards. So if you're interested, you should definitely submit. Uh, the early bird submission deadline is November 19th, 2021, so that's coming up. The regular submission deadline is December 17th, 2021. The late date is January 7th in 2022. And the extended submission deadline is January 21st, 2022. So if this seems interesting to you, please send in your short films or your long films. To the Harlem Film Festival. Um, Patients are counting on blood and platelet donors as the shortage continues. So with Thanksgiving and the holidays approaching, the American Red Cross urges donors to continue to make and keep appointments now and in the weeks ahead to help overcome the ongoing emergency blood and platelet shortage that has significantly impacted the nation's blood supply. At least 10,000 more donations are needed each week in the coming weeks to meet patient needs ahead of the upcoming holiday season, which presents seasonal challenges to blood collection. Donors are urged to schedule an appointment now by using the Red Cross Blood Donor app. Visit redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS. Those who come to give 
November 1st through 12th, 2021, will automatically be entered to win a trip to Hawaii, courtesy of Amazon, Amazon Prime Video. Really? Yeah. Those who come to donate November 1st through 23rd will receive a $10 Amazon.com gift card by email. Thanks to Amazon. So upcoming Dutchess County donation sites are at Annandale on Hudson, November 12th from 11.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. Hopewell Junction, November 9th from 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. And Millbrook, November 23rd from 1, 1 p.m. to 6 p.m. At Millbrook Firehouse and Poughkeepsie, November 18th, 2 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Boardman Road Branch Library. Yeah, that's great. You gotta donate blood. It's yeah, important. Yeah, potentially get a trip to Hawaii. There's no reason not to. On Jeff Bezos' time. <laughs> if you if Jeff Bezos can pay for your trip to Hawaii, uh, I would do it. Yeah. I don't see a reason not to. I totally agree. Let's go. November 12th, Annandale on Hudson. Adam and I will be there. Yes. So if you want to see us there, come and donate blood. Meet us live. Anyways, you've been listening to Independent Radio, 91.3 WVKR FM Poughkeepsie. And this has been More Than Miscellaneous. Filling in for Dean Kapitsky, I'm Adam Buckmuller. And I'm Lucy Brewster. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, Dean will be back next week. She could